Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. What I'm going to talk to you about today is the idea of meeting with Jesus. It sounds a a simple thing to say. Uh, I wonder if you've had the experience of uh, being about to meet someone for the first time and having a kind of nervous energy, like how is this going to go? Will this be awkward? Will this be weird? Will it be nice? Will uh, will, Will this be okay? Will this be safe? Maybe some of you have had that experience if you've done online dating and you've been chatting with each other you've been um, exchanging phone calls and you get into the point where you're going to meet up for the first time it's like will this be okay will they come across in person the same way they do online or will this just be really uh, not so good uh, I, I remember um, I haven't done online dating it wasn't a thing when I met my wife but um, uh, I remember when I first went to uni and I remember that walk having dumped my stuff in my bedroom into the shared kitchen for the first time and I knew the next year of my life would be shared with these people in this flat I had no idea what to expect I can remember the the timidness with which I went in there to see who would be around what would it be like and I remember as well when I was first on my journey to faith that was around a similar time maybe a year or two later than that experience of going to uni but not long after when I was first discovering Jesus there was that same kind of same nervousness really what will this be like as I get to know him as I engage with him in my life will this be okay will this be something that's positive and helpful for me that's what I want to talk about this evening been doing a little series through a book of the Bible called John. Uh, you might have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts that tell the story of Jesus' life. And this term, we've been digging into what John has to say. And at the end, he tells us his purpose. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. He said, I want you to meet with Jesus. I want you to believe. I want you to have eternal life as a consequence of believing. And he also said he did loads of other stuff. So John has chosen certain stories, certain things that Jesus did, and certain things that he said with the idea of painting a picture, uh, of giving us this uh, view. This is who Jesus is. And also, this is what it would be like to meet him. This is what it would be like to get to know him. And we believe as Christians that we can meet with Jesus now. So some of these stories will be Jesus meeting with people physically, but Jesus still meets with people spiritually today. So we're going to look at one of the stories where Jesus met with somebody. And then we'll just think about, well, what was it like? What was that experience of meeting with Jesus? How did it work? And think about maybe for us as we meet with Jesus some of the same things. So uh, we're in chapter four of John. If you've brought a Bible, that's where to turn. If you've brought a phone and have an app with the Bible on, uh, you could go there as well. Or if you don't, I've also got the verses behind me on the screen. So I'm going to pick up the story from verse three of John chapter four. It's a relatively long reading, um, but just um, follow it, try and like immerse yourself in the narrative of this meeting. Um, So he, that's Jesus, left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews don't share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he'd have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you've got no bucket. The well is deep. Where'd you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, well, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who's speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. I wonder what stands out. I wonder what strikes you from that story. Uh, Maybe lots of different things for different ones of us. But one of the first things that stands out to me is how how warm and how welcoming the demeanour that Jesus has in the conversation is. I think warmth and welcome are something that many of us long for. When, When I was going into that university halls of residence kitchen, what I want was a warm and welcoming space. I wanted people who would accept me for who I was, who would want to know about me, who'd want to be friends with me. I'm sure many of us have experienced times of 
of wanting. I remember more recently, I was invited to go to a meeting, and it was basically a theology meeting. So people from different groups of churches were invited, and there was a few things that said, hey, let's chat about what we believe about certain things. But more, more than what we believe, how are we doing in our churches, helping people understand it, teaching it? I was like, this is great. I'm looking forward to it. It was like a little jolly down to London for me to go and meet some people. But then I saw who else was on the invite list. I was like, oh my goodness, I've heard of you. And you, you've written a book, and I've actually got the book that you've written. And I was looking down these names of all these people. I was like, why have they invited me? Like, what, why am I being brought into this group? And I had this fear. I had this fear that they're just going to look at me and be like, yeah, why did we invite you? Like, well, what are you doing here? Get out. We'll have the serious conversation. You just sit in the It wasn't like that. It was classic imposter syndrome, I guess, on my part. But it just shows how, how deep-seated this, this fear of being unwelcome is. I guess many of us might identify with it. And in this interaction we've read about between Jesus and the woman, here there were, there were some real grounds, maybe, for her to be worried. As she was approaching that well and she saw Jesus sitting beside it, there was some real stuff that might have made her think, you know what, this isn't going to go well. This is going to be a difficult awkward thing. At best, he's just going to sit there and ignore me. At worst, this could be like a really uh, horrendous blow-up situation. You can imagine the nervous energy. I'll pick out three of the reasons why she might have feared not having this welcoming response that she did. The first one was a racial one. So she was Samaritan. He was Jewish. Let me just explain uh, the significance of that. Obviously, we're seeing stuff on the news about the, the current politics of that region. But we, we're going back 2,000 years, totally different situation. There's still some very real tension. So you had uh, a group of people called the Samaritans, and they were basically half Jewish and half non-Jewish. So Gentile is the word for non-Jewish. And a few hundred years earlier, what they'd done is kind of intermarried with the nations around them. So ethnically, half Jewish, half Gentile. Culturally, half Jewish, half Gentile. So they still practiced some of the same things the Jewish people did, but didn't quite do it in the same way that the people uh, who were actually in Judea did. Uh, religiously, kind of half and half as well. They brought some of these um, different religions and sort of mashed them together with their Old Testament faith. They kind of believed the Bible, but only the first five books of it, rather than the whole Old Testament that they had at the time. They sort of worshipped God, but rather than in the temple where everyone else did, they had their mountain that they'd go to instead, and they tweaked it and they changed it, and it'd become a bit diluted. And that was what the land of Samaria was like. And so you'd have people, like particularly the authorities and the leaders in Jerusalem, would be looking at the Samaritans thinking, yeah, this isn't good. They're kind of half in, half out, like one foot into worshipping God, but one foot in the culture. And they were desperate to see a revival. They were desperate to see God move. And they thought, we need everybody to be like full on going for it with God. And the Samaritans, they're a bit of a problem. And so they tended to look down on them. They tended to disassociate from them and see them as a bit of a, a problem. So much so that we've got the map there. Can we just have the map on the screen? To show you just the, the geography of it, you've got this bottom bit, Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. And then you've got above it, Samaria, where, and it says Sychar in the middle. That's the, the town that this happened. And then above that is Galilee, where Jesus was brought up and raised. And people, typically, who were going from Judea to Galilee didn't go through Samaria. They tended to take the long way round to avoid even having to talk to Samaritan people. 
Uh, on the other hand, the people in Samaria, then they're looking down uh, to their southern border, to Judea, and what they're feeling is just complete judgmentalism. They're seeing people down there, looking on them, treating them like they're the scum of the earth, treating them like they're, they're the dirt on the bottom of their shoes. So why won't you treat us like humans? Why won't you engage with us? Why won't you talk to us? You're looking at the history, and because of that, you're totally distancing yourself from us. So on both sides, there's this tension, there's this hurt. And so in verse 9, in our passage that we read, when Jesus starts the conversation with her, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? She's expecting the same kind of hostility that she's probably experienced from many others from Judea. That would be the typical response. And Jesus, he kind of breaks down the barrier, doesn't he? He he crosses that line that had stopped others from having a warm and welcoming conversation. Jesus, I'm going to step across that divide and I'm going to talk to you and I'm going to humanise you and engage you and relate to you as a person. And even later on in the conversation, when she brings up her big question, the question, it it speaks into this divide. Look, we say we worship on the mountain. You say you worship in the temple. Who's right? And Jesus is like, well, God's actually doing something different. God's doing a new thing now. And it's not going to be about the mountain. It's not going to be about the temple. God's looking for worshippers who worship in spirit and truth. It's not about any particular nation, any particular place. It's about the heart. And God's going to want to do a work in the heart that applies for the Jewish people, the Samaritan people, the Gentile people, even people here in Manchester today. God's doing something different. This is a big theme as you read through the New Testament, how the work that Jesus has done breaks down dividing barriers, breaks down ethnic and racial tensions between people. It says there's going to be one new person brought together in Jesus from all the people groups who previously had been at odds with one another. It's a powerful thing. But that that racial grounds would have been one of the things that perhaps worried her as she saw this Jewish man sitting beside a well. Another one might have been gender. The fact that he was a man, she was a woman. That might have worried her as well as she's approaching this situation. In fact, that wouldn't have been the done thing at all for them to have had a conversation. In fact, you see the response the disciples had when they spotted that they were chatting together. Verse 27 says, Just then the disciples came and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. They shocked them. Because they weren't used to seeing it. They weren't used to seeing interactions between men and women who weren't married to each other in those days. And I think part of it was just prejudice. It was just patriarchy at work, wasn't it? Like, uh, there, there were people at the time who, who would pray, God, I thank you that I wasn't born a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. That shows the depth of the prejudice of their hearts. But I wonder as well if it was uh, another dimension to it was perhaps sometimes people might be afraid of giving the wrong idea, uh, afraid that if, if he was seen having a conversation with her, then maybe people would look on and think, hey, what's going on there? Like something must be amiss. What, what's the dynamic here that people would look upon it and judge it? Perhaps that was a factor as well. But we see, don't we, in this conversation that they had, just how Jesus interacts with her in a way that's, it's not acting like he's superior. It's not acting like uh, he's somehow better and she's worse. It's not acting sleazy. It's not dismissive. It's not treating her like she's somehow a threat to his purity to keep her arm's length. He's treating her 
like a human being, because that's what she is. He's dignifying her. He's engaging her in normal conversation. Isn't it amazing that this interaction from 2,000 years ago holds up so brilliantly today as an example of how to relate to one another? Conversations from 20 or 30 years ago, people dismiss us, oh, it's a different time, things were different. This is 2,000 years ago, yet it's such a high-integrity model of how to relate. Jesus transcends that dividing line of gender as well as the dividing line of race. And you have noticed often in religious spaces and kind of churchy spaces, people can get really weird about this. I don't know if any of you have noticed the same thing. People can be really difficult and awkward about it. And yet in the Bible, it encourages us, treat one another as brothers and sisters. If we can do that, we're on the right lines. And then the third one, the third possible thing that might have made her think this um, interaction won't go well, was the social shame that she carried within her life. As she opens up about her experience of life, it, it talks about how she's had five previous marriages, and now she's living with somebody else. And we don't really know the circumstances around how those marriages came about and how they ended. We don't know uh, if in some or all of them she was widowed. We don't know if in some or all of them she was divorced or separated. And if she was divorced or separated, we don't know if that would be initiated by her or him. More likely him in the culture of the day, but we don't know that for sure. We don't know who would be at fault. We don't know if she did something wrong. We don't know if she was mistreated. We don't know any of that. But we can infer there's a lot of brokenness in her life. There's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain. And we can also see the societal response to her. This was really odd for anybody to be going to the well at noon. If you've been to the Middle East, you'll know it gets pretty hot at noon. That's not the time to go out and run your errands. Typically what people would do is go in the morning, just as it was dawn, before it really got too hot, but while there was a bit of light, people would go. And so you typically get a whole group of the women from the town would go to the well together at the first light. She wasn't with the group. She was on her own. And that's probably because of shame. Now, we don't know if that's because they've rejected her, that they've looked at her life and thought, no, no, you can't be with us. You be an outsider. Or maybe it's in her. Maybe she's got this sense of wanting to hide, knowing her life hasn't gone the way she, she's wanted it to, and feeling like, I, I just got to distance myself because... I think they're judging me. I think they're looking at me. And this is eating me alive, this thing. Shame can make us want to hide. And yet for Jesus, the shame perhaps that she's carrying about her experience, that's no barrier. I can think about the shame that I've carried. I can think about shame... I can think about stories that people who've known me at different parts of my life, that if they came up here and started to tell you those stories, I would be running out of the door. I, I just wouldn't want to be here. And you probably have stories like that too. You probably have things that you know, no, no, we're just not going there because you want to hide and you want to back away from it. Maybe there are things in your life that you're just like, I'm not, I'm not sure this is something that if people knew about it, they'd be okay with. For Jesus, the shame was no barrier. And it's not that he doesn't know. It's not that Jesus is unaware. It's like, oh, really? Is that what's going on? Because when they're having the conversation, he's the one who says, look, I know you've had five husbands in the past. He's already aware of it, and yet still he wants to draw close. And it's not like he pretends it's not a thing. Has anyone ever, ever had a conversation with someone where you know that something's a thing? 
and they know that it's a thing, but none of you are going to say that it's a thing. Anyone ever had that? That's not what's going on here. Jesus, he, he brings it up. He, he's willing to engage the conversation about it, but not in a way that slams her down, not in a way that is harsh or that judges her, but he's willing to do it in a gracious and kind and restorative way. Maybe you've got fears about meeting Jesus, around shame, around things that you carry, about things that are true of you or things that you've done in the past that you think, if this was known, how could Jesus want to engage with me? He'd reject me, wouldn't he? But we see here that's not what he's like, that he wants to engage you knowing that these things are true. And then over the course of getting to know Jesus, he'll go there and he'll bring stuff up that's true in our lives, but do so in a healing, restorative way. That's what he's like. Jesus sees all these things, and yet he engages her with this warm, welcoming attitude anyway. That's what you find when you come to Jesus. And can I say as a church, that's what we want to create as well, a space where that's true for everyone who walks through the doors. I don't know how many of you were around last week when we were hearing from Ellie about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But one of the commentaries on the Bible makes the link, and I think we're meant to see this between the two stories. It says John, the, the author here, may intend a contrast between this woman and Nicodemus because he was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable only of folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And both of them needed Jesus. I think these stories side by side is a beautiful thing. Showing us across the whole range, different kinds of people in the heart of Jesus is a warm, welcoming attitude towards us all. So I noticed the warmth, I noticed the welcome. The other thing that, that I notice is the, the depth of the satisfaction and the, the nourishment and the kind of internal good that meeting Jesus does. The conversation starts about water. I mean, they're by a well, it's, a, I guess, an easy talking point, isn't it? Jesus is there, he's been there a while, and it's a hot day, he's thirsty, he doesn't have anything to draw water. So he just asks her, can I have a drink, please? And I, I'm struck by how dignifying this is. You know, I think many of us, when perhaps we see someone um, like this woman, he's aware of the circumstance of her life, it'd be easy to steam in with, right, let me tell you what I can do for you. Let me kind of take the power position in this. But Jesus leads by being honest about his own vulnerability, his own need. You know, can't have a drink of water. I'm parched, I'm thirsty, I don't have anything to drink at all. I don't have anything to get the water with. Could I have some of your water? He's taking the lower place and he's showing her her dignity as someone who can meet his need. You see, as you meet Jesus, we know that Jesus is Lord, but as you meet him, you don't find him lording it over you, in a sense, but he draws with humility. And yet the conversation quickly moves on to something else, and he moves it on to this idea of living water. I don't know if you've heard of that phrase or what ideas that phrase brings to mind, living water. It's actually a, a phrase that's used in the Old Testament, that Jesus is probably um, referencing. And it's in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was a prophet. He was prophesying at a day when society had gone real bad. So people had turned away from God. There was massive social injustice. People were really harsh in the way they treated one another, really selfish. They were cheating the poor. Not a lot was going well. 
And so Jeremiah gives a, a word from God about what's gone wrong and what's, what's broken in their day. And he says, this is Kevin God's voice, for, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, that's the phrase that Jesus is picking up on, and they've dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. So instead of looking to God for the meaning and purpose and nourishment and satisfaction in life that's true living water, it's like they've gone to other things and he calls them like these cracked systems. They don't really hold the water. They don't deliver, but they think all this other stuff they're doing will satisfy them and it just won't work. I think Jesus has that in mind when he talks about, look, I can give you that living water. I can give you that true satisfaction from God. She doesn't really get it. She's thinking about the physical water from the well still. But Jesus is talking about something very, very different. I remember uh, I mentioned earlier about my journey to faith, uh, about 19, 20 years old. And I remember at that time how desperate I was, how thirsty I was. And I look at the things I did, and it's like I'd thrown myself into one thing after another after another. I, w- I was trying to latch on to whatever I could find that would make it feel like life was worthwhile, that would give me a, a, a joy inside, that would make me feel, yeah, things are okay now. And I, I was thirsty. I kind of knew I was thirsty for something, but I didn't know what it was. And it didn't even occur to me that Jesus might have anything to do with the answer to it. But I was going through life trying to find it. In a lot of ways, I was like the woman that Jesus met with in this story, because she too had a, a thirst deep inside, and she was looking to other places to get it fulfilled as well. That's why when the topic of living water comes up, and she says, hey, I'd love some of this, Jesus immediately pivots the conversation onto her relationship life. That wasn't just kind of a random aside or trying to get uh, a bit overly personal. He knew that that was the area that he needed to speak into for her to drink this living water, because that was her cracked system. That was the thing she'd been looking to, to try and find fulfilment deep inside. It was uh, this string of failed relationships that she'd had. I wonder what that thing is for you. I think for most of us, there's a thing. It might be multiple things. What, What are the things that you go back to again and again and again? Because Something in your mind keeps telling you, if I look to that, then I'll be happy. If I look to that, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be okay. These aren't always bad things. They might be bad things. They might be good things, but we're just trying to draw from them something that they could never give. But what Jesus is telling her, and what Jesus would tell us this evening, is the same thing. He says, I can meet that need. I can be that living water. I can be that thing that fulfills you at the deepest level, that satisfies you in your very soul. It was a promise he made to just one person in this chapter. But if we read on, I'm just going to flick a few pages to chapter 7 of the same book, John's Gospel. He extends the promise to all of us. He was at a festival, a big uh, gathering. Loads of people had come to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 37... On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Anyone thirsty this evening? Jesus says, come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink, as the scripture has said, 
out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. This living water will satisfy you, but then it will flow from your heart and will impact the world around you as well. And it says, now he said this about the spirit, which believers in him were to receive. For as yet there was no spirit because Jesus was not yet glorified. He was making the promise, as you put your faith in him, he wants to pour out his Holy Spirit. And that's the very presence of God himself coming to take residence in your heart. And him being there, he will bring that satisfaction. He will give you that water that satisfies your soul and changes your world around you. And that's what this woman's experience was. And it was so utterly transformative for her. She actually dropped her jar. I don't know if you noticed that detail in the story. She'd gone to the well to get water. She'd had a chat with Jesus. Then she ends up running back to the town and she leaves her jar behind. Her mind's on something totally different now. And she gets into the town and she gathers all the people up and she's like, hey, everyone, I've got something to tell you. I've just met a man. Uh, you can imagine, like, uh, there's no shame. There's no fear. She's not thinking, like, hang on, they're, they're going to be like, what, another one? Like, that's not what it is at all. She tells her story. He, is he the Messiah? Is he the one we've been looking for? And she tells it so compellingly that everyone from this town gets up and goes to see him. And then we see a bit later on, verse 39, we didn't read it in the reading, but it says there are many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. You see, the story she told changed the world around her. Meeting with Jesus transforms everything. I can think of loads of meetings I've had in my life that have impacted me in different ways. Meeting with Jesus is on a totally different level. I wonder what's been your experience of meeting with him. I know that there are some people in here who have stories to tell, stories about how you've met with him and how he's changed your life. Maybe your story echoes some of the themes we've talked about today. Maybe your story identifies with this sense of, you know what, I, I, I thought as I came to Jesus I'd be rejected. I thought for reasons X, Y and Z, he couldn't meet with someone like me. And yet he did. He welcomed me in. He drew close to me when I was fearful through shame or whatever other reason. He would never want to know me. Maybe you resonate with the idea of the living water that you found in him a satisfaction that you couldn't find in anything else in life. Or maybe some of this is new to you. Maybe you're here at church, you're still quite early on the journey, you're still trying to figure it all out. And what Jesus would want you to know is two things. He'd want you to know that you are welcome that he wants to meet with you. And whatever the things in your mind that are saying, yeah, but he wouldn't want to meet with me because of this or because of that. He said, no, I want to smash through that. I want to give you the warmest of welcome. I love you and I want to meet with you. And he wants you to know that wherever you've been looking, whatever you've been going after to find this satisfaction, he says, this living water is on offer for you. Those who drink of the water I will give them will never be thirsty. That's the promise that's on offer. It was what was on offer for her, and it's what's on offer for us 